Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we will continue on in the text. So let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we are once again so very thankful for all that you've blessed us with, all that you've given us, all that you've given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that as we look into your word and as we look into the things that are found there, that your spirit would be working in our hearts, causing us to see our sin, causing us to be more like your son, Jesus. Father, may we be more, uh, more trusting in your, in your uh, promises based off of what we see this morning and that we would walk in a way that's worthy of the calling with which you called us. We thank you and love you for everything you've given us. In your son's name, amen. So I, I imagine if you were to go onto my computer and see all of the things that I search throughout the various week just for teaching, and let's face it, I'm a strange guy, and I have strange things I look up. This morning, for example, I was looking up how fast do I have to go on a snowmobile across a lake that I don't fall into the lake on top of the snowmobile? I have to at least be going 50 miles an hour, by the way. I could do it, right? And there is a record of a guy going miles, miles on a snowmobile on a lake. Apparently, all you got to do is keep that momentum going, and it'll kind of hydroplane you across the lake. Uh, you, now, you can't turn... <laughs> you can't turn, so make sure it's a long enough lake, right? Because if you got to turn, that, that could be bad. And you can't stop for any reason whatsoever. You, that momentum has to keep going. Found out there's actually people that race snowmobiles on lakes. Like it's a, like an official sport. There's even jumps you can go off of. Sounds fascinating, right? So as I was reading about this, I thought, you know, I, I wonder the first guy... That thought, you know what I'm going to do? You know this machine that's not a boat, designed for snow? I wonder, could I drive this across that pond? I wonder if that was somebody's first thought. It, it sounds incredibly foolish and incredibly dangerous, right? But it starts with, it starts with uh, I think, this thought of, well, I guess if it can be done... It probably should be done, right? That, that's, the, that's the thought of somebody that does that. Now, that's not necessarily the wisest statement to make. If it can be done, it should be done. If it's dangerous just in driving snowmobiles over ponds, imagine how far more dangerous it is spiritually, right? When a fool who knows better or a fool who disregards God's word says, because it can be done, that means it should be done. Shows a sense of disregard, right? I have no regard whatsoever for wisdom or sound advice. This morning, that's what we're going to be looking at in Proverbs 21, is this blatant disregard for God's law for things that should be done, things that ought to be done. Now, remember, in this chapter, well, in this section, right, so from 10 to about 26, Proverbs, 
this is the lion's share of Proverbs, deals with one major subject, right? And the major subject is this. I want you to see the wise, and I want you to see the foolish. And I want to, I want to compare the two, right? That's what Solomon is doing, comparing the wise and the fool. So that's what you're doing. You're seeing what a wise person does, and then you're seeing the polar opposite of what a foolish person does. Every single proverb that we read in this section, you've got to remember that the undercurrent is the fear of the Lord. So these are not just mere observations, social observations. These are not just kind of like spiritual bumper stickers that Solomon would have printed up and put on the tunics and slap on the back of his donkey as he's riding down the street. These are not bumper stickers. These are sayings to help us remember principles reminding us of how important it is to follow the Lord. Okay, And so what's he doing in the section? He's comparing the two. Here's a wise person. Here's a foolish person. Specifically in chapter 21, because what he's doing is he's kind of looking at the, the wise and the fool in different situations. And we've kind of seen this, right? We've looked at each chapter. In each chapter, there's like a different situation that's happening. And, and here's what a wise person will do in this situation. Here's what a wise person will do in this one. Specifically in 21, the chapter is about following the Lord and rebelliousness. The wise are going to follow the Lord. The fool is going to be rebellious. He's not going to listen, right? He's going to, he's going to apostatize. He's going to leave. We started the chapter by looking at some of the reasons why, some of the, some of the logical reasons why a wise person would say, no, I need to follow God's law. I need to follow God's word. And that is because he's sovereign. He's already the king. He's already the ruler. Who, who's above him? There's no, there's no higher court you could appeal to. Not to mention the fact that he's sovereign and uh, he's going to do whatever he wants. Regardless of, what, regardless of what I do, he's going to do what he wants. The other thing is, why should I follow the Lord and why is it important? Because I realize he sees everything. He knows everything. So for us who do what's right, what an incredible encouragement, right? You mean he saw what I did when no one else saw it and he sees it? That's great. The opposite is a big uh-oh, right? You mean he saw that? You mean he knows that? He, he knows what I'm thinking there, right? So a wise person goes, look, he already knows. There's, I can't hide it, right? And then lastly, we realize that God loves it when we're obedient. That's what he wants. He wants obedience. He doesn't want sacrifices. He wants obedience, right? So in this section, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at, in these verses, in verses 13 through 17, we're going to look at the fool and how the fool has no regard. Now, I know that we're doing a lot of backtracking here, but remember last week we talked about one of the reasons you shouldn't disregard God's law is because of the punishment that will come. So in verses 11 and 12, we talked about the punishment of God upon the foolish. This next section deals with what, what is some of that punishment? What does that punishment look like? And what are some of the areas in which the fool disregards God's law? So verse uh, uh, 10 and uh, 11 and 12 kind of act as, here's what happens to a fool who completely disregards. And then following is, this is kind of what it looks like when a fool is disregarding. Okay, So we're going to look at four things this morning in this text, Lord willing. 
In verse 13, we're going to see that a fool does not have any regard for his neighbor. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. Specifically the ones who are the most needy. He has no regard. doesn't matter. They could come to him with, with the, the greatest need ever, and he could fulfill that need, but a fool will ignore him. No love. No love for his neighbor. In verses 14 through 15, we're going to see that a fool has no regard for justice, has no regard for the law, has no regard for what God's law has to say, doesn't even care about man's law. He just disregards it. He's willing to break it. Not only is he willing to break it, he's also scared of it because he realizes that uh, it exposes him. Verse 16, we see that he has no regard for, for God. He doesn't care about God's wisdom. He has no regard for it. Why would he? Why would he? He's the captain of his own soul. Why does he need to consult anyone else? So he'll completely wander away. And lastly, in verse 17, we're going to see that a fool has no regard really for anything other than himself. He is so self-centered, so so narcissistic, loves pleasure so much that it doesn't matter. He, think, he thinks he can do whatever he wants, how he wants to do it, and people are going to love him, and he's going to be wealthy because of what he's doing. And each of these, you're going to see how they epically crash and burn, right? Because it's bad. It's foolish. It's going to fail. So let's look at this first one that he has no regard for the needy. Proverbs 21, verse 13. Notice what Solomon says. He says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and will not be answered. So first of all, just notice, whoever closes his ear, this word for closing your ear is pretty close to what you think. Uh, It would be to take your fingers and put it in your ear, right? You're closing them so you can't hear. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody do that or if you've been talking to somebody and they did this, I've just got to admit, that's not the most polite thing to do, number one. Number two, you automatically know what they're thinking. I'm not listening to you. I don't care what you have to say, right? Sometimes that's probably smart. Other times, it's incredibly rude, right? I'm not listening to you. That's the image. So whoever sees a, a needy person, a poor person, and hears their cries, they go like this, I'm not listening. I'm not listening. What's what's amazing, specifically when you think of the Old Testament, is how many times God in the law, like in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, tells the Israelites to listen to their brethren who's needy. Take care of your brethren who's needy. There, there, There were certain things and certain practices and certain amount of money that they were supposed to give. They were to care about their brothers who were in need. Okay, that that they're supposed to have love for their neighbor. In the New Testament, it's amplified. Right? Because Jesus, Jesus asked the question, or the question was asked to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives this story of, uh, uh, of people walking around a man, and, and they had no regard for him. But here was this one guy that comes along and helps this guy who, who's, who's left on the side of the road and beat up and everything is stolen. And Jesus says, that's, that's what it means to be a neighbor, whoever I come across so as a believer, the sense is that we are to love one another. It's important that we love one another, but it's also important that we love people. We love our neighbor, right? That's, that's an important thing. Jesus teaches us to do that. 
it's not good when we stop when we stop our ears and go i'm not listening to the cries of the poor those who are truly needy by the way that's the that's the meaning here for the word poor in verse 13 whoever closes his ears to the cry the idea for cry here is it's a life or death cry right it's a life or death cry to the poor the person who's poor is doesn't have the necessary things needed to live so we're talking about walking by somebody who doesn't have any food and you have food and not giving them food. That, that's the sense, right? Now, we might say, well, we in the church, we don't really, we've never really struggled with that as a Christian church. It's not true. One of, the, one of the books, one of the epistles in the New Testament deals with the subject, the book of James. The book of James, you have, you have some rich people who are, taking advantage of poor believers who are in need. And instead of helping them, they're taking advantage of them and exploiting them. Not good. James James goes as far as to say, can you really say you have faith if you do this type of thing? That you're willing to exploit someone like this who's really in need and you exploit them because of their need and you don't help them? Can you really say you have faith? That's the idea. By the way, we're going to see that Here, the idea of being poor isn't necessarily the same as being impoverished. I think Solomon's going to make this distinction, and and the distinction, I think, is this. Somebody who's poor is needy, whether it's their fault or not, but they, they need something to survive, and you help them. It's going to be clear later on in this text that there are people that do things, and because of their own foolishness and their own ongoing rebellion, they will suffer in hard times. Okay, And so it's kind of this thing brought upon themselves. The Apostle Paul also makes this kind of distinction uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Remember where he talks about uh, those who do not work, do not eat. So there is this sense that just because somebody's in need doesn't necessarily mean that I'm obligated to help them. I don't have a callous heart, right? No callous heart, never have a callous heart. But sometimes help doesn't necessarily always look as writing a check or giving them something, right? In that, in that situation in, in Thessalonica, Paul's advice to those people are go out and get a job, right? If you don't work, you don't eat. Ergo, go out and work. Then you can eat, right? So it's, not, it's, it, it, it's, that they, it's that they were kind of mooching off of the people. So here, Solomon is kind of talking about a fool, and a fool has a cow's heart. That's why he's not listening. He has a cow's heart. He doesn't care about his neighbor. His neighbor is in serious need, might not survive because doesn't have the resources to survive. And, and as he's crying out for help, he goes, I'm not listening to your cries for help. So notice, what, what, notice, notice the consequence. <laughs> it says, whoever closes his ears to the cry of the poor will himself cry out and will not be answered. The, the assumption is that he'll cry out in the midst of his own problems, right? So it's kind of like that guy who, <laughs> who doesn't listen to anybody else who has a problem. The moment he gets a problem, then, then he starts to cry out for help. And, and, and here Solomon says the principle is nobody's going to listen to him. You could even read it in a way to say, doesn't, whether he's in need of anything or not, he's still going to cry out and nobody's going to listen to him, Right? 
Because here's this fool not listening to anybody else. Everybody sees how callous he is. And it's that callousness, that, that, that callousness that people see. And that callousness is off-putting to other people. So even when he talks and he cries out for anything, nobody's going to listen to him. So there's this societal aspect. But let's be honest. There's something probably a little bit deeper here too, isn't there? If I don't love my neighbor and I'm this callous, do you think God is pleased with that? Do you think God is pleased with, with people that are callous and not listening to the cries of, of those who are really needy? I don't think so. And, and I think the expectation should be, if I am this callous, this callous, and I cry out to God uh, in prayer, do you think he's going to sit there and go, you know, I know you were super callous all week, but yeah, we're fine. Our relationship is fine. Stuff you're doing is fine. The sense is that this damages, right? This damages relationships. This damages things. Even when you're in trouble, let's say you're this callous and you do get in trouble. People are not willing to help you, right? This is one of the consequences of of folly, right? When you disregard God's word and you constantly do it and constantly harden your heart towards the advice of God's word and, and, and what you're supposed to be doing, there are serious, serious consequences. Namely, you cry out and nobody listens. Now, there's another thing. Notice, notice the next thing in verse 14. It says, A gift in secret averts anger, and a concealed bribe, strong wrath. You might read some commentaries, and you might read the commentaries, and they say, Solomon is just simply just stating a matter of fact here. He says he's seen in his own lifetime that people who bribe judges and people, they kind of avert wrath. And so it's Solomon just making some sort of social commentary, right? Like, like the ancient world really needed this type of social commentary. A bribe will avert wrath. There's even one commentator I was surprised when I read this and I see the word bribe and this idea of secrety, secretive uh, we, we've seen this language before in the book of Proverbs. It's always seen in a negative light. Bribery is always... One guy said, sometimes you just got to know the right time to give a bribe. What? No, that's not the conclusion of this verse. That's not, that's not the point. This verse, like a verse that we saw earlier in the book of Proverbs, deals with the logic of a fool in why he would give a bribe. So a fool says, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble with the law. Instead of repenting, getting right with the Lord, making amends, taking my lumps, growing from this, of what they should be doing, they say, I'm going to try to get out of it, and I know I'll give a secret bribe. I'll give a bribe to somebody, and if I do that, then the law will subside, right? Justice won't come down on me. I won't get the punishment. That's the idea. That's his logic. So if I give a gift, if I give a secret gift, it's to avert justice. It's to avert great wrath. This stuff only works for a moment, right? I'm sure we've all seen and and read or or even watched documentaries about the mobs and how they pay off different officials. It works for a time. But it doesn't work all the time. And and, and eventually, your sins will find you out. And this perverts justice. And and so some people can do the same crime, and and because they can bribe and because of their connections, they don't get the same punishment. That's not right. It's not right. 
it perverts justice. Bribes always pervert justice. And, and even giving a gift and, 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 and saying to a person with a wink, I'm just, I know you're a judge in a court case that I'm about ready to sit and you're going to make a judgment. I just want to let you know, here's some keys to a car out in the parking lot. If you get in it and drive off, great, you got a brand new car, wink, wink, with the expectation of maybe you let me off. It's a perversion of justice, right? And so the principle is, principle is a fool thinks like this. But notice the next verse. Verse 15, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoer. That's why the fool wants to, to pay a bribe, because he doesn't want to face the terror of, of, of justice. Now, we must remember that Solomon is writing to a completely different context than, than what we, where we are, right? So we live in a world where there are different spheres, right? You have a secular sphere, and then you have the church sphere, right? And the courts are not necessarily governed by the scriptures. They're not governed by Christians. There's like these list of secular laws, and then there's things that you do inside of the church. In, in ancient Israel, that was not the case. You know what the law was? The first five books of the Bible. That was the law. So, so think of this. When a fool in that time is paying a bribe to avoid some of the consequences, he is essentially saying God's law isn't right. I can get out of this judgment, right? God's not right. The judgment's not right. It's not a good judgment. I can, I can get out of this and not get this punishment if I just grease a couple wheels here. The righteous person in this society, when they see God's word, and the punishments from God's word enacted in society, when they see God's word properly applied in society, they say, amen. That's exactly right, because God's right. His word is right. His judgments are right. So when you see justice in this context, it's the proper application of God's word, and it's the proper discernment and application of God's word in a particular situation, and you say, thank you for wise men and wise people that make these applications and these judgment calls. We're seeing God's, we're seeing the way that God designed it working. It's working. It's just. So the righteous are over the moon when this stuff happens. That's what the word means, by the way, when it says, uh, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous. The word is, uh, man, you want to grab your mandolin and do a jig. It's excitement, man. This is some great stuff. At least three banjos are involved in this song when you play it, when, when you're happy. There's at least three. It's this excitement, this exuberance, this, this I, I'm so, I'm so thankful that God's word is being properly applied and the righteous are excited because they know that it's from properly applying God's word, the proper uh, place of God's word, and when it's placed in, in people's lives rightly and people are adhering to it, that's the best case scenario for everyone. It's the best case scenario. The fool no, he, he, he thinks the opposite. Notice, it says, but a terror 
to evildoers. I got a book in my office. It's written by a guy by the name of Ray Comfort, and it and it has it, it's entitled "The Beliefs of Hollywood." And what he's done is he's interviewed famous people from Hollywood and famous actors and directors and stuff, and he asks them just basic questions about what they think about Jesus and about all this stuff. Really, really interesting read. In the book, he interviews Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt grew up Baptist. You want to know why he left? Because he said, every time I read the Bible, I felt like I was under judgment. And he said, I don't want to feel that way anymore. So I left. There you go. That's exactly what this, that's, that's exactly what happens when you read God's word. That's exactly what happens. If, if you, there's this conviction of sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does is he convicts us of sin. The wise person takes that and says, okay, I'm going to repent of my sin. I'm going to walk with the Lord, right? That's what the wise does. To an evildoer, it is terrifying, petrifying. So what do they do? They have no regard for justice. They're willing to try to change it, right? Bribe somebody here, do something here, avert it. It's bad, bad. It will end bad. It ends bad. Now notice the next thing. He has no regard for God's wisdom. He has no regard for God's word. Verse 16. One who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. (laughs) There are certain verses that if you read, there should be chills sent down the back of your spine when you read it. This should be one of those. The principle here is pretty profound. A little bit of a debate on the meaning of the word wander. Some people debate that the word means that they're just kind of, uh, it's, like, it's like the little kid. Uh, well, let me put it like my kids. Imagine Ezra and Adair are walking down a path. Ezra will wander off a path when we tell him not to because he wants to go somewhere else. So is it that kind of wandering off the path? Like, I willfully walk off? Or is it more like AJ, who will see a butterfly? And then he'll see this, and then he'll see that. And he's not looking where he's going. And as he's not looking where he's going, he's not being careful, and he'll just, next thing you know, AJ's in Canada, right? Is it one of those things? It, which one is it? Which one is it? Is it, is it willful neglect? Or is it, is it like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just kind of wandering off i got to be honest with you. It's probably a little bit of both. The wanderer here, the one who leaves. That's the idea, though. The one who transgresses, leaves the path. Whatever reason he leaves the path, whether it's out of full rebellion or he doesn't care enough to watch himself, doesn't matter. But, But notice, he wanders from the way, from the lifestyle of good sense, of wisdom, of discernment, of proper application of God's word, of, 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 of knowing that God is right and, and man is wrong, and then following God and realizing the, the value of following God, the, realizes the value of the gospel. When, when he wanders, notice the consequence. He will rest in the assembly of the dead. This is a euphemism for he will die. He'll die. Whether this is the consequence of his sin because he's breaking God's law, and he might have broken one of God's laws that deserves death, 
or because he's doing something really foolish, someone won't like what they're doing and they'll take matters into their own hands. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. As believers, it's easy for us to wander from from God's word. It's easy for us to think that foolishness is right and leave the good sense of God's word. We could say for us as believers, knowing that there's never a time in which we'll be separated from the love of God, we could say this, if you do this, it will end in disaster, right? It'll end in disaster. I have never met a person and never seen a situation where they willfully disobeyed God's word, willfully disobeyed principles of scripture, and it turned out all right for them. Even if it appears to turn out from our perspective, I guarantee you, if you start to dig in and start to talk to them, I guarantee you it does not turn out well. So one of the consequences of going away from God's wisdom, the wise see it and they say, we're not going to do that. Now, one of the things that might lure someone off this path, notice in verse 17, it says, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man, and whoever loves wine and oil will not be rich. A fool loves pleasure. He loves to feel good. And if that's what he's going for, and he thinks he's going to be successful, according to God's, you know, if he feels like he's going to be successful, but, but he's not listening to God's word, it's not going to be a successful life for him. In fact, in fact, a fool who loves pleasure will probably spend all of his money and all of his time on pleasure and have nothing left in the bank, right? That's the idea. It's because he's so concerned about, I want to feel good, me, I want to feel good. I'm the center. It's all about me. I want to feel good. And notice, notice the type of way that he wants to feel. Notice some of the stimuli that he uses to feel good. Uh, Solomon uses two words here. He says wine and oil. Wine, you can imagine what he's doing with wine to feel good, right? Talk about drunkenness. That's the implication, that he's going out and drinking. And he does that to feel good. He, he does that to party, right? That's what we'd call it, party. Oil, some, some people said that this, this may refer to expensive food. You cook with oil. It's more likely, however, um, speaking of perfume, like, like medicinal oil, like, like we would use hand lotion, right? So in the ancient world, the rich, if you were wealthy, you had fragrant oil around and when you would go out you would pour it over your head this oil and you would smell good your skin would be soft you know uh you were normally a little bit plumper and you normally had really pale skin so if you were oily plump and pale skin that was the way of wealth, right? That, that was kind of the, the picture of wealth in the ancient world. And, and so the idea is, is, here's this guy that all he cares about is going out, getting drunk, and, and, having, the appear, and having all of the nice things and all the pleasures that this world can offer. How does that end? Does that end with him being rich by spending all of your money on yourself? No. And thus, you can kind of see how this kind of fits, right? So back up in verse 13, he cries his ear, he, he closes his ear to the poor. 
he does some bad stuff. He tries to avert justice, right? He wanders away, and then he spends all of his time thinking about his own pleasure, spends all of his time thinking about me, me, me. Has no regard for others, has no love for others. This is why verses 12, 11 and 12 are in there. This, that's, the, that's the principle. If, if you continue in foolishness and continue to rebel, you will be punished. And, and this is what the punishment is. This morning, we're going to, uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together here in a, in a minute. And as I think about the Lord's table in this text, and you go, well, how can we bring these two together? Friends, when, when we read verses 13 through 17, this sounds like a really good portrait of who we were before we knew Christ. This sounds like, this sounds like a heart that's hell-bent on sin. And it's only because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. He died, he was buried, he rose again. And only because he works on our heart and we place our faith in Jesus that we then can have any hope of being rescued from any of this, right? And moving from a place of folly to a place of wisdom is because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so the desire here for, for us this morning is not to look at this text and to write in the margins of our Bible all of our neighbors who do these things so that when we see them, that verse pops to our head and goes, Ah, sinner, get him! The sense is for us to examine our own lives in light of what Jesus Christ has done. He's called us to live a life of wisdom and of holiness. And this life of wisdom and holiness requires us to love. Requires us to be gracious. Requires us to be humble. Requires us to be teachable, submissive. That's that's what we should see out of this. When we look at this, we should say, you know what? I have done, and there are, like... This past week, I've done some of these things. That's not what God wants. He wants us to live in a way that's worthy of the calling with which he called us. So this morning, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want you to be thankful for what Jesus Christ has done, rescuing you from a life of folly and bringing you into a life of wisdom. And so as we pass out the elements, I want you to think of that. But before we do that... um,